Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you and to be here with you. Pastor Mike is on vacation this week, and uh, he asked me to preach. If you don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm one of the associate pastors here. I'm the children and family pastor, and uh, it's my pleasure to be uh, talking with you out of the Gospel of John this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn in it to the Gospel of John. If you don't have one, there's a Bible in the back of the chair in front of you. Just go ahead and grab one of those and ask your neighbor to point out John if you need. But we are reading kind of a doozy of a passage. It is very, very uh, chock full of theological goodness, and uh, we're doing all 18 verses. I tried to look up, like, how how many sermons do people usually take to preach through uh, the first 18 chapters? I found uh, one pastor that I really liked did it in five sermons one time, and we're just going to do it in one, no problem. Um, Go ahead and stand up once you're there, John chapter 1. This is focusing on Jesus Christ, the living word. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He is he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Father, we are thankful for your word and for what it tells us about Christ. I pray that as we read it and study it this morning, as we see Jesus revealed, that we would worship you, Father, and cherish your word. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. This is one of the most theologically rich passages in all of the Bible, and the focus is on the Word. Normally when we talk about the Word in reference to the Bible, we're almost always talking about the written Word, the Bible itself. This time, it's a little bit different. 
We are focusing on the living word, and that's what I want to focus on through all 18 verses. Is It's a description of Jesus Christ, the living word. And we're going to get three descriptions. Actually, I have three and a half points. How do you have half a point? Well, you'll see in just a moment. But uh, we'll, we'll get there in a moment. There's, there's sort of an insertion in there, but we'll get to that. Let's begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This first section is going to be talking about the pre-incarnate Word, or the pre-existent Word, and it reminds us right away of Genesis chapter 1. It has the exact same kind of phrasing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word... Word is going to be very important to us today. It has a capital W in my Bible. It probably has something like that in yours. It's an indication that we probably look into it a little bit. And I am not an incredible scholar of Greek and Hebrew. Um, I, uh, I, they, they, they made me learn it in seminary, for which I suppose I am grateful. But I'm not always super excited to get into it. I don't often talk about Greek words. Uh, I know some people who really like that, but they shouldn't, in all honesty. Um, but the Greek word here is an important one, and you should know it. The word is logos. If you want to pronounce it logos, you can, but I'll roll my eyes at you because I don't like that pronunciation. Logos usually is a reference to the spoken word. And it was a significant word because it would have already meant things to both a Greek audience as well as a Jewish audience, but they would have understood it to mean different things. In Greek philosophy, it was used often to refer to rational principles, inner thought, reason, logic. And it was used in that way frequently, and that's how they would have envisioned this word. So if the Logos is taking on flesh, then it's almost like thought and reason personified. The Hebrew audience would have understood this to be something different entirely. In the Old Testament, the Word of God was very important to them, and it played three primary different roles in the Old Testament. One, the Word of God is used in reference to creation, that God created the entire universe by the Word of His power. That his, by His words, He spoke the universe into being. It also was a reference to revelation about God. God would reveal things about himself by his spoken word. And finally, the people of God were delivered, were saved by his word. By his word, he brought them out of Egypt. And that's what they would have thought about. And so you have two of these audiences who understand two different sort of aspects of this word logos, and John comes along, and he doesn't necessarily contradict either one of those. What he does is he adds an extra layer onto the word. He adds new meaning to it that the New Testament audience can grasp onto. Because as it turns out, in the beginning was the word. Before anything was created, before anything else came into existence at all, the Word was there. 
It was pre-existent. Or as we're going to find out, he was pre-existent. The word was with God and the word was God. I am not, I suppose, an expert on English. But I think normally you kind of have to pick and choose between both of those two concepts. Either How can something be with God and be God? It would be strange if I told you I was with my dog spot and I am my dog spot. Those aren't like, they seem like those are competing phrases. And John is completely unworried about it. The word was with God and the word was God. I think inevitably this is talking about the Trinity. It has to be. This is where we get the idea of the Trinity. Another, another passage is like this. Where God is one, there is only one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's how the Word can be God, but also be with God. Some people will tell you that a better translation is... Uh, the Word was with God and the Word was divine. That is to say, not exactly God, just God-like, God-ish. And it's just not true. And the reason is because in Greek there's a very clear word for what divine is, and this just isn't the word. They used the word, John used the word for God. And he's trying to make a very specific point, that the Word is God. And then in verse 3, we start to associate it with other things that God did. We know that God created everything, but in verse 3, we find actually that God created everything through the Word. The Word was God's creative agent for making the universe. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So it's not like God can have created the Word and then the Word created everything else because everything that was created was created by the Word. In the beginning, the Word was there. Nothing was created without Him. If you fall into the category of something that is made, then the Word made you. And that's what we have in verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We are certainly going to talk about this more later in our next section. Light and darkness contrasted is a major theme in John, both the Gospel of John and 1 John. And in the Word was life and light. And in darkness, darkness cannot overcome the light that was in the world, that was in the Word, I should say. We're going to talk about that more later, the, the darkness of the world that we live in. But... I really want to focus on the pre-incarnate, pre-existent word here. I think it's very important, and this passage is a primary passage for talking about the deity of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just a good guy, a great teacher, or who knows, some sort of crazy weirdo. That Jesus, if you're going to believe the Bible, you can only believe one thing about Jesus. That he was God. That is part of his innate and intrinsic nature. 
that he's completely inseparable from being God. It's not, we don't really have a modern equivalent for this. Most, of, most people, I can think of numerous examples of people sort of coming into sort of a reputation over time that they now seem to be inseparable from. There's all kinds of sports stars that get a reputation for being clutch when the game is close. And most of the time, that's not true. But sometimes you just, they just can't shake it, right? Everyone now refers to them as clutch because somehow their reputation has grown and it's just an intrinsic part of them. I like to read Ender's Game is one of my favorite books that I always read as a kid. And spoiler alert, if you're going to read it, he at one point uh, destroys an entire alien race, kind of by accident. At the time, he was told he was saving the universe. In the subsequent books, you fast forward 3,000 years. And instead of being considered the savior of the world, he now has an entirely new reputation. He's now known the universe over as the xenocide as someone who killed an entire race without mercy. And he's just, that is just now his reputation. This isn't, this isn't a reputation that Jesus built over time, but at least you kind of get a little bit of the flavor of the extent to which Jesus cannot be separated from God. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot claim to believe the Bible and believe in anything other than the deity of Jesus Christ. It is simply not an option for you. And it's amazing that so many people would claim to be Christians and would claim to believe the Bible, yet would still deny the Trinity and would deny the deity of Christ. And it simply can't be. You don't have that option. And this, there's no better time than John 1 to drive home the fact that Jesus is God. And that is a wonderful thing. It's the pre-incarnate word, or the pre-existent word. Next, and here's our half point. It's kind of like the half tribe of Manasseh, I guess. We have this little insert in verse 6. We want to focus on the living word of God, Jesus Christ. But here in verse 6, John the Baptist shows up for a few verses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that he might, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Two things, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Two things to realize about John the Baptist that John makes, wants to make very clear. Something that he was and something that he wasn't. He wasn't the light. He was a witness about the light. So all this light talk, it's not John. John is there to be a forerunner for Christ, to tell the world about what God is doing through Christ. But he's not actually the Messiah. In verse 15, we get a little bit more John. He kind of jumps in there in a parenthetical statement. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John's public ministry started before Jesus's, chronologically speaking. But John is saying, Look, just because I came before doesn't mean I'm any better. It's actually Jesus who's better than me, even though he came after me. Because, as it turns out, he's preexistent. He actually is before me, even though he's after me. That's the logic there. Let's move on. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. 
world is a that word is used frequently by John, 78 times in fact. Sometimes it's used in a positive sense. John 3:16 is pretty straightforward for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son world is used positively it's the object of God's love there oftentimes it's used neutrally also it's just they just happen to mention the word world most often it's used in a negative sense that's the most common usage of the word world in the gospel of John John 7 7 is an example of this the world hates me because I testify its works are evil you see what I mean by the negative use of the, of the word world? The world hates me. The world's works are evil. And that's the predominant view of the world in John. And that's the world that we're looking at here in 9. And in fact, this is our, our second description of Jesus Christ, the living world, the, the living word. And that's how he was received. We had a description of his reception. He enlightens everyone. He's coming into this world that is bad, that is full of darkness, that's full of evil and sin. And he enlightens everyone. That's kind of an interesting phrase. In what way exactly does Jesus enlighten the entire world? We know that it can't be in, a, in the sense of salvation, We know that John's not teaching that everyone is going to be saved because they were enlightened by Christ. In fact, we have just a few verses later talking about how those who believed in his name have the right to become children of God. And so it it can't be that. I think the best explanation is, if you just want to flip one page in my book, in John 3, verses 19 through 21. The way that the light illuminates the entire world. Look at this, John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So Jesus illuminates, he lights the world in such a way that everyone is exposed. Their deeds specifically here are exposed. And some people hate the light and they love the darkness. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. There are some who love the light. Those are those who are performing their actions. The things that they do are being done in God. So Jesus comes to illuminate the deeds of the entire world. He was in the world, and the world was made, made through him, yet the world did not know him. Back in verse 10. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This further fleshes out the exact world that Jesus was sent into. This light was coming into the world, and in fact, he had made the whole world 
We just read that back in verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He made everything, and then He came into the world. And the world looked at Him and didn't know Him. And in fact, not only had He made the whole world, but God had called out a specific group of people, the nation of Israel, and He came to them specifically, saying, you're my people, and so I'm coming to you first. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. We turn things down all the time, I suppose. We regularly reject things. Someone tries to give you something like, no, my, my house is too cluttered already. Sometimes they bring you, you're at a restaurant, and they bring you just the wrong food. You're looking at that, like, I wish I had ordered that, but that is just not mine. Send it back. The world that Christ had made rejected him. And the people that God had called his own and sent his son to turned him down and were uninterested in him. That is the world that God's word went into. I want to end up talking about that world in, in relation to the rest of the verses. So we're going to go on, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about these all together. Especially verse 12, but all who did receive them, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We're going to talk about that. But I want to fast forward to 14, because this might be the coolest sentence in the entire Bible. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's so similar, or it, it, it pairs so well with verse 1. In the beginning of the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Just like Logos would have been something that both Greeks and Jews understood and had some concept of, the same thing is true with this verse. It would have been a little bit shocking, in fact, for the Greeks that the Word became flesh would have been very confusing to them. Things that were spiritual and things that were physical simply didn't go together. The basis of spirituality in general was the separation of spiritual and physical things. And so it would have been beyond bizarre to hear that the Word would become flesh. For the Jews... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Depending on what translation you're using, it might say something like pitched His tent among us or the actual Word is tabernacled among us. You might recognize that Word. The tabernacle was a big deal in the Old Testament. Before there was the temple, there was the tabernacle. The tabernacle fulfilled the same function as the temple, but just came before it. It was necessarily temporary. They weren't always staying in the same spot. And it was, well, a tent, specifically. But that's where they had daily worship and sacrifice. That's where the Holy of Holies was. God's glory resided there. The Ark of the Covenant resided in the tabernacle. And in the Old Testament... The unique and personal presence of God was there. And it's such a strange thing to think about now. 
in this one place, in this one geographic location, was, I mean, God was everywhere, but this is where God was. And you know who gets to go to the place where God was? One person. The high priest gets to go once a year into this holy of holies. And that is where the unique and personal presence of God was. And in John 1, we find out that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Suddenly, this incredibly exclusive experience of closeness to God, being able to, in a sense, see God, is now being made available to anyone, anyone who can see Christ. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Suddenly, God was dwelling among us to be seen and talked to and, I don't know, poked if you could get close enough. This was an amazing thing that God would become flesh. It would have been astounding to the Jewish audience. In fact, we know that it gets even better for us later. We find out in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 says something similar, For we are all the temple of the living God. And so we know not only did God put on flesh and come to the earth so that we could see His glory, but for everyone who believes, for everyone who has faith in Christ, you are the temple of God. God's unique and personal presence now indwells every single believer. We have the Holy Spirit and can be the temple of the living God through what Christ has done for us. And that was accomplished through the incarnation, through the Word putting on flesh. We behold His glory How did the Son show us the glory of God? Ever think about that? There are a few obvious answers, I think. He performed some miracles, signs as John calls them. That's got to point to God's glory. He lived a perfect life. He rose from the dead. All of those seem like pretty obvious examples of the glory of God. What's interesting about John, and he makes this very clear, not only are those ways in which we beheld his glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, but John is very clear that the death and the suffering and the humiliation of Christ is in fact part of his glory. He associates John 12, 23 and 24 and other places. He associates suffering and death with glory. And that is just not how we normally envision God's glory. But Christ was obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And there's something about that suffering, that death, not just the resurrection, but the actual death itself that showed the glory of God.
I teach our the the anchored class. Uh, it's actually going on right now. I normally teach third hour. It's our college career group, and we've been going through the Book of Revelation. And uh, what I told them, I'm trying to do it in six weeks, uh, the entire book. And what I told them, this was this was the plan. I'm kind of cheating. I told them we're going to do it's basically a topical study on worship from Revelation. I told them I want to teach the entire Book of Revelation. We're just going to skip all the end times parts. Um, those are the hard ones anyway. Like. It'll just be way easier if we do that. Um, And so far, it's worked out really well. Um, I've I've moved much faster than I normally do. But I have been in awe of worship, the worship that takes place in heaven. And as I was studying John 1, it seemed so similar. It just made me think of Revelation 4. I don't know when's the last time you looked at Revelation 4. You can turn there if you want, if you want to see it. But Revelation 4, chapter 8, is describing... There's a whole lot going on. We're just jumping into the deep end here. There's a whole lot going on, but we're... There are these four angels. These are cherubim, actually, and they're these crazy-looking angels. And they, it says in Revelation 4, 8, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And I've been struck by the content of their worship. Look at what the angels are talking about. God is holy. God is almighty. He's omnipotent. He's eternal. He was, he is, and he is to come. And then, fast forward just a few verses, and you have 24 elders who are now falling before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so now we're going to add a fourth thing. In fact, that's something that we get even in John 1, the fact that God is a creator, that God made everything. And just those four things by themselves, holiness, omnipotence, eternality, and being the creator. Those are things that I am very familiar with. None of them were a surprise. I know that those things are true. But it's kind of amazing to me that that is the content of the worship in heaven. That that is what causes people to worship day and night, forever and ever. Because I know those things... And I feel like they, quite honestly, don't cause me to worship very much. And let me explain that, because I, I wonder if it's the same thing with you. And we come here, we sing words. I know Pastor Alex chooses, chooses the songs that we sing very carefully. The kinds of words that he uses are very God-focused and Christ-centered, and they're theologically rich and always true. And I'll be here, and I'll close my eyes, and I'll sing loud, though hopefully when no one's around, because I'm very bad at it. But I'll sing loud, and I love to worship God like that. And we'll sing songs. I, we haven't sung this, this one in a while, but uh, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Right? Like, that's a song. And if we put, like, probably a lot of you know that, and would sing very loud if we just busted out an impromptu version of it. But... How often do you in your regular life truly worship God for being invisible? That was, a, that was a, one of the ones in the song. 
Immortal, invisible, God only wise. Even his wisdom, I feel like there's all kinds of maybe the largest theological concepts in the Bible. In very specific contexts, we're willing to worship God for them. Namely, I feel like music. Music seems like the most straightforward one. I love music that talks about God's eternality. But I'll tell you what, I read about his eternality right here. And you know what happens when I read that most of the time? I do something along the lines of, huh. Very rarely do I feel the need to stop everything I'm doing and worship God because I thought about the fact that He has existed from eternity and will continue to do so for eternity. And all manner of other things. That He created everything. It rarely stops me in my tracks. It rarely has a huge effect on me when I'm not here with the rest of you. I read it in the Bible plenty. I teach it probably as often as I read it perhaps. And why isn't it causing me like it does these elders in Revelation 4, to fall on my knees. And, you know, they had crowns at least they could give to God and say, God, you can have every bit of glory I own. And I cannot even go on with my life because I thought about the fact that you created everything and I must, I must worship you for it. How often does that happen to you? The incarnation that God became flesh and dwelt among us so much of what we have in Christ depended on him becoming a man and coming to earth and living and dying. And I know that it's confusing. God became flesh. I know that it's important. He had to do it. But does it cause me to worship very often? These are the biggest theological concepts in the Bible. Nothing makes God appear so big and so grand as the fact that He was a creator, as the fact that God took on flesh, that He is life and in Him, and, in, and the life was the light of men. And so often the biggest things about God are the most cliche to me and evoke worshipful responses in only the most narrow avenues of my life. And it simply shouldn't be. It's got to be different. We have to be more in awe of our Lord. And I'm confronted by that more and more as I've been teaching through Revelation, as I studied 1 John. God is is great. And I don't treat him like that often enough. Some things are difficult to worship God for. Some other things are easier. And this passage does bring up something that at least I find This is maybe the easiest thing that I find to worship God over. Verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Wasn't what I was thinking of. Oh, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Son's glory is full of grace and truth. We have all received from God grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Back up to 12 again. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Our God is a gracious God that is part of His glory, is pouring His grace out on other people. And what's amazing is the context in which this happens. Because again, we are in a dark and fallen and sinful world. A world that God created and then rejected Christ. A, a, a people that God chose but did, had no interest in receiving Christ. And in that dark and fallen world, God, by His grace, is empowering people to become children of God. And that has happened throughout eternity and continues to happen today. No matter how dark the world is, no matter how bad it is, we have received grace upon grace. And others will continue to and become children of God. Our God is a gracious God and those two together, verses 9 through 11, talking about that dark world, and then 12 through 18 through the end, I feel like it's a theology of hope. It's what I wrote down. That even in the midst of this world that we're living in, this sometimes awful and difficult place, there is hope there is still grace from God the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it we've been talking a lot about biblical counseling got it on the screen you got the book that you can buy it's a fantastic book I really it's long I know but it really is very very good biblical counseling is Maybe not the greatest name in the world. It's very explanatory, but it sounds so frightening. If I were to ask, if we just show a hands, like how many people want to be biblical counselors? I don't think a lot of you, I mean, some of you, I'm glad some would, but it's, it's a little nerve wracking, I think, right? Part of the problem is like, what if I mess this up? You know, what's, what's going to, they're going to uh, become a drug addict. I'm not even sure. Like something bad is going to happen if I say the wrong thing somehow. And so what do you... Let's leave the counseling to the professionals. Seems to be how a lot of people think, and that is simply unbiblical. And biblical counseling, again, we're, we're trying hard, and I really would encourage you to come up, to come on, on September 7th to the Grace Bible Institute. We want to demystify this because it's not something that's just for professionals. It might be better described as simply biblical advice instead of biblical counseling. 
How do you give someone advice that is sound, that is biblical, that will result in God's glory? And perhaps you've been in a situation like this before. Have you ever had a friend who had a problem, who came to you? They're like, ugh, this happened. Sometimes it can be like relatively minor. They just got to make a decision, trying to figure out how to do it. Sometimes, man, sometimes people are going through hard times. Their life's falling apart. Personal life is in shambles. Their marriage is awful. They're not sure if they're a believer. Their kids are walking away from the Lord. There's all kinds of things. Sickness and death. There's all kinds of things. What do you say when they come to you? What's the response when someone comes and is like, I'm broken and I need help. And that moment, that's what I think most people are afraid of in biblical counseling. What if I don't have the answer? I don't, what, they got a serious problem. I don't know what to say. I'm going to give you the answer right now. So you don't have to be worried anymore. And so you'll come to GBI on September 7th and get the rest of it. But what, what do you do? What is the answer when someone, uh, is having this hard life? I think the answer is the theology of hope that no matter what you're going through, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. And that is something to tell every single person you know and to preach to yourself all day for the rest of your life. That there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. That truly the light shines in darkness and darkness has not overcome it. That no matter how sin has affected you, no matter how bad your circumstances are the, or the world treats you, no matter what it is, there is hope. That's how you should always start your biblical counseling. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Bring him to John 1, I don't know. This is something that the world needs, this hope. And this is something that the church needs. Because life is hard and the world is dark. But we who believed in his name, we've become children of God. He's adopted us into his family and we have all received grace upon grace. And praise God for that. This is what he accomplished through Jesus Christ, the living word. He existed eternally. He's God. He enlightened the world. Man, it was a dark world. But we beheld his glory Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we received grace and were made children of God. Some of you might have, up till this point in your life, ignored the hope that's offered in Christ. And you're living in a dark world. And you have not received grace from God. And I'm telling you, today, come to Christ and become a child of God. For those of you who are believers, again, 
Remind yourself every day. Remind your friends, remind your spouse, remind your kids, remind everyone that there, is, there remains hope in Jesus Christ, hope that is sure and will never go away, and that we will continue to receive grace from God for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for everything that you have done. God, you sent your word into the world, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we can even now see the glory of Christ. And we know the work of your spirit in our hearts. God, and we want to worship you correctly. We're so thankful for your grace, for hope, God. We're thankful that you created everything and that you are eternal. And we want to worship you with our whole hearts and with our whole life. God, we love you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.